0: Hi, I'm Jamie Panetta, and this is the Decolonizing Medicine Podcast. I'm a queer, non-binary trans person, and my ancestors are Tagalog and Chinoy. My healing arts practice is located at Fruit Camp in Baltimore, Maryland, the traditional land of the Piscataway. If you are not in Baltimore, I also work with folks virtually. So in about a minute, you're going to hear Mick and I introduce themselves, but I wanted to also share that about a week after recording this episode, I got to spend time with Mick and I in a coffee ceremony, and it was a straight-up time portal interdimensional experience. Um, The neuro-spicy dialogue was popping. The people were amazing. Um, I even missed couples therapy, and I wasn't even mad about it because I was so... In it. I was so in this experience. Um, if you know me in real life and how I am about time, that is significant. So, without further ado, um, let's get on with our interview. Welcome, Mika and I. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm going to have you do a little introduction of yourself just because um, you do, like, 5,000 things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I do. So hello, Jamie. Nice to see you again. Thanks for having me. My name is Mikanai Arafine, and um, my pronouns are she, they. I do 5,000 things, but they are all connected, which is really nice. I live in Baltimore City. I'm not from here originally. I moved here in 2020. I did grow up on the East Coast. Um, I'm first generation Ethiopian. I was born and raised in rural Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley. Very beautiful um, place. And um, I... Life, my journey has taken me through a lot of different things. I'm definitely one of those people who's worked like every type of job and done every type of thing. But currently, I'm a doula and I am an applied anthropologist, um, cultural organizer. I also play with herbs and I also have a food business called Habisha Flavor. It's a Baltimore based Afro conscious culinary and cultural wellness brand. And I'm super into Black speculative fiction and Black speculative arts. Um, Yeah, I love everything to do with that um, and have since I was a kid. So it's like really cool that it's dope now. Um, I don't know what else. I That's wonderful. I (laughs) am so excited
0: to talk with you about food and sci-fi, which is like, basically what I talk about all the time
1: yes okay great (laughs) like (laughs) real
0: everyday life um (laughs) so my first question for you is how do you see food as an active decolonizing medicine
1: all right so this is a great question um and could write a book on it maybe I will one day um I of course I'm going to tell a story because that's how everything is with me I um I had this realization maybe last year um, as I started to deepen my practice around you know what it means to eat ancestral foods and why and integrate things into my into my um, personal sort of understanding and personal decolonization of how I eat and why I eat the, you know how I cook but also like what I sell to my community and that being really important but. When I was younger, um, I was in school for social work and then I ended up dropping out. I went back and ended up doing, trying to do like international law and um, justice and um, was really engaged in that. But the backdrop of that was that people in my community, first generation Ethiopian, um, come from a family of refugees. And it just like, My dad had diabetes. Um, He got it in his 40s. A lot of people in our community were getting sick. And as a result, I just started to become really curious about why it was that we were seeing these rates of increased high blood pressure and diabetes and mental health illnesses and all these things in our community specifically. So I took a nutritional anthropology class, and it really... Um, changed my viewpoint of all the different factors that make us sick. Um, I ended up traveling to Ethiopia and Kenya and doing all this sort of things as like a thinker. But it really wasn't until last year that I had this moment where I realized that in our cultures and maybe in the history of, um, you know, folks in, I don't like to do this dichotomy of like, Pre-colonization, or like this sort of um, ideal native sort of thing, where you know this idealized, oh, the natives are so pure, you mm-hmm. like, know, diet kind of thing. I don't like to do that.
0: That obsession with purity and authenticity, yeah. which is like not actually real,
1: exactly. Um, but i but i do like to say that there there was a time before this sort of you know like we can think of like high like before and after high fructose corn syrup i think is even like a great example um you know we weren't afraid of food and years ago i remember talking to my aunt who had been living in the us at this point for probably 20 years and i was telling her about how cows were raised in the us and Oh like, no. <laughs> she'd, been eating, she'd been like lit- eating it. Like she had no idea and she started crying. And I was like, "Oh my gosh." And then she was like, "You know, we raise our cows." And I started to think about the relationship that my grandmother had to her cows. Um, and my aunt was like, "You know, cows have like funerals for other cows and like even though they eat meat in Ethiopia, it's like meat that they've raised and then they butcher and they have this connection to it." And I started telling her different things about the food here, and she just had no idea. And then I realized I'm like just like recently I said, we come from a culture where people are not afraid of food. Mm -hmm. You know, that food, like things that are poisonous will make you sick, but like this idea of being afraid of food, like, like we have to be afraid of McDonald's. We have to be afraid of things in the grocery store. Um, And, When we have a fear-based relationship to the foods that we eat, like you go to the doctor, it's like you have high cholesterol. You need to cut out all these things. Um, what a like shitty way to have to like navigate your existence, right? Is like
0: yes,
1: like food is medicine, but it also shouldn't be like so poisonous that just the act of eating something that fills your belly and makes you feel better. Right. If I go, if I'm hungry and I eat Wendy's, I feel better. Right. It's uh-huh. not like, it's not rocket science, but over time that's going to have a detrimental effect on my body. So yeah.
0: <laughs> it's very, it's such a perverse relationship to food that has happened with like industrialization. Um that I think is really—it's very complicated, because not only are we afraid of like what might happen to us nutritionally, I think that leads to us being afraid of like how food was prepared, like culturally and ancestrally, for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, in the Philippines, not a lot of people—I mean, still to this day, actually—access um, to refrigeration isn't super widespread. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, in I feel like being in like being raised in the U.S. and understanding like food handlers, like getting my food handlers permit when I was younger, and all, like all of these like foodborne illnesses um, that are very real, but like they're also worse when you have really shitty quality food, yeah, because of how it's raised in in an industrial con- context. Yeah. And we're not doing the same kind of food preservation um that our ancestors did. Like Filipinos are really known for cooking a lot of stuff with vinegar. Mm. Or like eating a lot of fresh foods. Like we do have some like pickled things or like dried fish, you know, other ways of being able to eat food safely without refrigeration mm-hmm. that like would not fly in the mm. US.
1: I love that you brought that up. I think yeah.
0: we, you know, like
1: I love that. Yeah. Um, my dad talks about this when people ask about Ethiopian food and he's like, You have to understand that our food is meant to be eaten without refrigeration. Um, and that's a huge reason of like I have I make a spice mix. One of the things I saw is a spice mix and it has a ton of seasoning. People are like, you yeah, like 13 or like I have like 15 different seasonings or spices in there. And I'm like, Well, yeah, we season our food and our food's spicy because like it's meant to be eaten without refrigeration. But when you talked about the fresh food, my aunts in Ethiopia are like, they have like a small refrigerator in it and same thing. It, it like, you know, when there's no electricity, it doesn't work. They kind of, it kind of yeah. works better because it's like a sealed, like airproof box. If anything, it's like a giant cooler, but they were like disgusted when I didn't finish my food one time. And I like put it in the fridge to eat it later. My aunt was like, she gave it away. <laughs> I'm like, giving this to like the kids or like to some. She was like, absolutely not. So it, it's like almost taboo even to not eat freshly prepared food. Um, and you talk about foodborne illnesses, it's like how we prepare food in the U.S. is also <laughs> very interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think like this perverse relationship to food in. And so people then go like the other direction and they're like, we need to be completely plant-based. We need to be complete. we need to exclude everything. And we need to like purge all these bad things from our diet. And we need to be like militantly vigilant about everything that we eat. And then I'm like, well, that's not always enjoyable either, you know? And, it's, and it kind of sucks that people feel that they have to be plant-based completely in order to, um, you know, per- like be healthy. And then that comes with a lot of different things, too. There's a lot of people that are plant-based that are still getting diabetes or still having high cholesterol. Right. And I think that, like, if I just go plant-based, everything else will be fine. Um,
0: there's a – I think there's also a myth there that our health is about individual choice, mm-hmm. which is not true, right? Like, yeah. it, it's not – it's not just what you eat. Like even if you eat the most perfect diet with the most balanced nutrition, that's not the only thing that is affecting your health.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's like there's so much more to it. And so, you know, how you eat, how you prepare the food, the way you feel, right? So like in my culture, we eat together, there's this word called commensality. It's the it's the act of eating food together, um, and it does something to your nervous system. It does something, and and when you cook things slowly, when you prepare things in a certain way, when you sit down and and take your time to eat, um, all those things like play into our relationship to food. And when we have a relationship to food that roots us to more than just sort of being satiated, you know, when it's actually connects us to community, when it connects us to the land, when we have this relationship to like, knowing how the food was grown, um, it changes the way we feel when we eat and how we even feel when we prepare food and like our whole relationship to food. I mean, we also have this like diet culture in the U S we have, there's just so many things that like really like traumatize us in our relationship Uh to food. Um, and you know, I live in a food desert and it's easier for me to get a corn syrup filled soda or Fritos than it is for me to get a vegetable um you know when we've like people have been talking about food deserts for a long time but we don't really talk about like how to change that um a lot of times it's just let's let's give out free produce in the hood <laughs> that's like the favorite thing they love to- that produce is also like 2 seconds from going bad i don't know who's got mm-hmm. time to cook it um but this idea like this personal choice thing like i love that you brought that up it's the same thing with environmentalism everybody's like if i just stop using plastic, then my individual choice is, and then your individual choice is going to make a difference. First of all, the amount of privilege that is like wrapped up in that. And then, yeah. so like, there's more, like just one flight, you know, does more damage than like a lifetime <laughs> of not using <laughs> plastic.
0: You know, it's like, <laughs> right. Like get out of here with your metal reusable straw.
1: Yeah. It's like, care. you know what these indu- in, these industries, like how much like harm these industries are causing to the environment, like your individual choice, God bless you. Like, you know, good. Like it's gra- It's great to be conscious and it's great to feel better. And if you have the privilege, do it. But it like the pressure of that individual choice, it, once again, yeah. is it, it's, it's like, it's traumatic.
0: It's super traumatic.
1: Because you still feel like you're having to go against the grain and you're like putting all this pressure on yourself. And that is not medicine. That is not good for you. <laughs> like,
0: And like, I think that a lot of medicine, especially for folks who are marginalized, comes from pleasure. And to live a so-called like clean lifestyle with a clean diet, that's only pleasurable if you have a lot of money, because otherwise it is stressful as hell. Facts
1: facts um yeah and that's also very western this idea Uh of like this puritan idea of excluding things in order to be pure um even going back to this idea of medicine i read this amazing book called curative violence years ago in one of my transnational feminist anthropology courses and it's about wait a
0: minute can you can you re-say that name of that course (laughs) I
1: took a class on transnational (laughs) feminisms. It was a cross course between, so I'm an anthro student, but it was, I think, in the Women, Gender, Sexuality Studies program. And we read this book called Curative Violence, and it's actually about South Korea. And um, so I, just a little bit of background, um, the the fields that I kind of come from are a mix of different fields within anthropology, and anthropology is super problematic. We won't, I mean, I could do a whole other thing about that, but um there's That's your some second like, book yeah there's some really <laughs> great stuff from within anthropology in in like the radical in the more radical reading that I think is really really amazing so this this critical medical anthropology this field of critical medical medical anthropology really looks at this idea of curing versus healing
0: Mm-hmm, and
1: yeah. it gives us a lot of language for understanding and it looks at people around the world and how they approach and it also t- talks about sickness, disease and illness and how even people perceive being sick and what sickness even is. And you see you start to see these very clear themes emerge between um western medicine and what we call the biomedical approach and the approach of like healing praxis and how non-Western me- practices of medicine. And so this is like definitely your field, right? So yeah,
0: the idea yeah.
1: is like if you if you give the body what it needs to heal, it will do that on its own. And uh-huh. that's very different from this idea of curing something. And curing is a very violent thing. Um, it often, it talks about like purging or like, and so it goes back to this Cartesian. So Descartes, I think therefore I am this idea of in Western.
0: The most white man, white man thing to say.
1: Yeah. Of breaking up the mind from the body. And so this is kind of where we see in Western thought, like this emergence of, you know, the body almost being disease the whole idea of the body being like diseased so mm-hmm. like to cure the human condition and so the body is something that needs to be cured and so this sort of like leads into the sci-fi thing because if you it's almost like the body is is flawed and needs to be cured of its weakness. Yep, And this is where we get into like, I mean, I don't know, I'm old enough to have watched Gattaca. I don't know that you probably remember that.
0: I, I remember Gattaca, but yep. yeah, like it's so much of it is like you remove, you have to like, ha, um, it's like warfare on the body. That's what a lot of Western, well, Western is not the right word, but like more biomedical um Allopathic medicine is like Mm -hmm. you're doing warfare on the body. You're trying to kill all the viruses, kill all the bacteria that are not supposed to be there. Surgically cut something out that shouldn't be there. Exactly. Um, Whereas like a lot of different traditional medicines, and I'll speak, you know, from my practices, it's more like cultivating a garden. Mm. So if you balance the ecosystem of your body in addition to the ecosystem in which you exist as an individual, then everything is just more robust, right? Like if you have lots of terrible insects eating things in your garden, then you plant more flowers. So that system is in balance.
1: Exactly. It's not war. Yeah, it's not war. And so our relationship to food is you know, it feels like war and I'm watching my dad deal with his diabetes for the last 20 years. It's it's like this constant battle, you know, and it's always everyone saying, well, if you just did this and you just did that and the prescriptive method of trying to cure something that didn't come from a disease that is like communicable. Like you can't cu- like di- diabetes is like cumulative. It's not something mm-hmm. that just you got a bug and now you have diabetes and you can just take some antibiotics and heal it. Um, and so these are chronic illnesses that we just know that are also being like the pharmaceutical system is benefiting from this. And and so this is why like when you talk about decolonize like. The connection between decolonization and food it's just it's just so big right it's like it feels insurmountable and I think where I have really started to in maybe this is part of the age but getting older is it really starts super small and me as a person who sells food to my community I can make choices that like almost like being a doctor or being a healer, like do no harm. So if I'm mm-hmm. a healer. It applies to everything that I do. And so it's important for me as a person who is providing nourishing things to my community, that they be safe. And that because of my lived experience, I have the information and the resources to do what many others cannot. And I need to see that as a gift and a responsibility. So, you know, my food's allergen free. Um, I've been uh emerging like relationships with local farmers. I recently did a, a food drop in my neighborhood where I was able to get all the collard greens from Strength to Love Farm. Oh my god, these like heirloom collard greens. Oh my gosh, just beautiful. I think
0: collard greens are like some of the most majestic looking plants. Uh, like they're with their like huge leaves. Everyone's like so obsessed with um like yeah. fiddle leaf plants, you know, in their homes. And I'm like, but have you seen a collard green?
1: They're just amazing. I always, that's like one of the most basic things that I always have cooked. I literally have like a container of collard greens in my fridge right now I always, and whenever I do food drops, they're always going to come with my collard greens. It's probably one of my most popular dishes. Um, and it's such a black food. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. When I did my pop-up at our house, I have black folk coming in that, you know, are from the from turtle island our descendant from slaves and you know me coming from ethiopia and being first generation that's not my lineage and a lot of times they would be like wait y'all collard greens in ethiopia and i'm like yeah this is a black food this came from africa like this is ours Mm -hmm. um and a lot of what i do is i i and i i this is ours and it's about reconnecting us to what's ours um reconnecting us to this knowledge that belongs to us. Coffee comes from Ethiopia. Coffee is black. Right. Mm-hmm. And so given the knowledge, then and given the sort of opportunity to do things in a certain way, allowing folks to then build their own ecosystems and, you know, care for their own garden in a way where they feel empowered to make more choices A lot of the way our health and wellness is mitigated. So like, you know, I thought about my name for my company, Habisha Flavor, Baltimore-based, Afro-conscious, culinary and cultural wellness program, wellness brand. (sighs) Wellness is like so freaking colonized. And there's a whole thing like decolonizing wellness right now too. And it's still like having to choose from the, like you go to Whole Foods or you go to Mom's Organic and you're, you're having things like sold back to you at a ridiculous price that belong to you in the first place.
0: Oh, yeah. Like I remember the first time I saw coconut water in a white grocery store, (laughs) I was so mad. I was like, I can't believe you're gonna take that from us. And then they started like marking it up. It's like so expensive now. And I remember that being like a treat going to like the Asian stores. With my parents and getting like a coconut water and it's better at the Asian store because they put like bits of coconut in it
1: yeah yo like we could ethnic grocery stores like that's a whole thing right there
0: besides coconut water are there uh products in the grocery store that you have seen where you've had a similar reaction where you're like what the fuck don't take this from
1: me Like when I go to Whole Foods exactly and I'm like, wait, what? Like how much is this? I can just go to the Ethiopian grocery store and all this stuff is like from the motherland, like 10 times better quality from a person that like I'm buying when I buy it from an Ethiopian store, it's coming from a Ethiopian or Eritrean or African person. So I'm like getting the, you know what I mean? Like I don't need this shit like repackaged back to me. Um,
0: oh hell yeah!
1: Yeah, so I think about supply chain, and I think about like who we're buying the things from, and and how. Yeah, so my aunt, I took my aunt to Mom's Organic. I took her to like the coffee section, and I just was like, which one of these things? I was like, you know, I just said, what is what does this look like to you? You know, this is coffee, and you know, they little cans cans of coffee, and she was like, what? And she goes to Mom's Organic all the time, but she goes to buy like her little few things that she likes, and this is in DC. And um, she has a garden. She grows, like, all this amazing stuff. She's lived in D.C. for, like, 40 years um, and, like, is a huge part of my, you know, my life and how I understand food and eating and all these things. I mean, she's, yeah. But she was shook. Like, this is look like coffee. And I'm like, I know. She's like, I thought it was beer, <laughs> you know? I mean, so and this is a person who, like, ro- we roast our own coffee. We make our own coffee, you know? And so she – and then – when I showed her the price of it and it was like a little time, she like, excuse me. I'm like, yeah, I know. And guess how many of these coffee companies are selling all this like cold brew and all this stuff are actually African or black or anything. None of them, like not a single, you know, one of those companies is even from the communities. So if I go to the Habesha store, I can buy like Tomoka coffee, for example, which is when I, like, when I go to Addis Ababa, Tomoka coffee coffee is super famous you know, it's it's um and so all this Ethiopian coffee that's for sale everywhere. I have gone to I lived in Oregon. I lived in Portland, they take their coffee super seriously, it's really annoying. Um yes. and, I,
0: I lived in Seattle, very similar.
1: We, yeah. I they're in there like, this is an Ethiopian coffee bean, and they're like explaining everything and they're like, This will be well, my partner or my best friend. We can maybe edit that. My best friend <laughs> One of his favorite things to do is, like, make a meal that's – and he grew up in California in, like, a vegetarian household, even though he loves to eat, like, kind of shitty food now. Like, when he goes into, like, his bag, it's, like, he's in his bag, and he'll start doing all this, like, wild shit. One of his favorite things to do is, like, make a plate for for me and just, like, hand it to me and be like, that'll be $17.99. Like, that's our joke, you know, is, like, how this food is, like, reconstituted back to us and sold for an absurd amount of money. But – um, I'll just be like, do you know that we have an Ethiopian coffee ceremony? And they're like, what's that? And I'm like, so you are a coffee connoisseur Mm -hmm. who doesn't know. So you want to teach me how to use a Chemex and all this technology, which is your own coffee ceremony, which I respect. I respect coffee nerds. That they have their own ceremony, weighing everything out. Like, it's a ritual. And I'm like, that's cool. You do this every day. Like, it's really beautiful. Like, I'm like, good for you, like, people that don't know. But <laughs> no one have this Ethiopian coffee ceremony. And they're like, wait, you hand roast the beans? And I'm like, yeah. They're like, well, what do you do it in? I'm like, a skillet right. from a store. Like, oh, do you put anything in it? No. We just, well, how do you measure everything out? Measure. What do you mean measure? Like I just know well, how do you know when it's done? I look at it, I smell it, like I can tell. You Every know,
0: like- a PGM recipe that you ask from like your parents, and they're like, No, you just you you just look, I just know. <laughs>
1: yeah. So coffee would be like the big one that in especially with the, like Ethiopian coffee specifically. Um so I started offering Ethiopian coffee ceremonies as part of my um like personal practice, but I also do this thing called, well, so as a personal practice, as a business practice, and as an artistic practice. And I did this thing um, at the AAA, which is the American Anthropological Association annual meeting um, as part of this sort of radical... um, (laughs) Dr. Elizabeth Shin, incredible artist, anthropologist very radical, very, very fun, did this thing called Wakanda University and um, was as a disruptive thing, but it was really great. And I did this thing called Waiting for Buna. Bunna is the Ethiopian or it's actually like Bun is Arabic and a lot of different like languages, Bun or Bunna. And I actually used the coffee ceremony as a decolonial ethnographic, like indigenous and decolonial ethnographic method. So ethnography is like this sort of tenant of anthropology. It's usually like participant observation and being like this outsider and going and like watching people do their thing. But I did this like reverse gaze where I used the coffee ceremony as like this live sort of like art performance art. And I interviewed people. And not only that, I kept inviting people. So we did it like outside this like San Jose Convention Center the first time I did it. And these Ethiopian women who owned a store nearby like ended up just coming and like sitting and doing the coffee ceremony with us. And I had them. And then I had like, some of my my classmates who are not Ethiopian and are differing. Most of them are white. And then there's people that are coming out of the convention center and walking by and I'm like inviting them in. And the white male anthropologists, they're like, Oh, well, how long is it going to take? You know? And I'm like, I don't know oh, we have to be somewhere. And, you know, they're just rushing to go to a bar to, like, unpack their, like, presentation they just did. And the people that were not Ethiopian were, like, waiting for the coffee to feel comfortable. The Ethiopian women and their friend who, like... So, basically, they were just having a good time. They're just talking. They're, like, eating popcorn. We're, like, having this, like...
0: That is the ceremony.
1: (laughs) And later on, when I interviewed the folks who were not Ethiopian... I said, "When did you feel the most connected to this to this whole thing?" And they said, "When we drank the coffee." And then I was like, "So this idea of the consumerism of the the we we connect in American culture through consumption." Whereas the Ethiopian Ethiopian women, it was the waiting for the coffee. It's what happens when you're waiting for the coffee. That's like the thing is in the in between, the socializing, the rest, the you know and i just thought that was so interesting and then of course you have the people that didn't even want to sit down but then we had like these random people that would come like you're doing a cop like they're like we don't know what you're doing we're gonna sit down It was a person from kenya there was, <laughs> i did it again i've done this like multiple times since then i did this this guy stopped he was this ethiopian guy he like stops on the scooter he comes in like sits down and he just starts he's like oh bet you're doing a copy ceremony like i'm just gonna sit down we're like all having a good time. His friends call him and they're like, dude, where are you? And he's like, oh, he's like, I'll be there in 30 minutes. (laughs) Like didn't even care. And then it turned out that we like knew similar people back in Ethiopia and all this stuff. But I was like, he just sat down, didn't give a fuck about time. Um, So even like this idea of like time and like quantum time and decolonized time, I was able to unpack all of those things to do in this coffee ceremony. And it just opened up this door to so many other things um yeah
0: that is so amazing that is so amazing um well are you going to be doing that anytime soon
1: <laughs> cuz now regular, I want to go i'm doing the regular coffee ceremony at two events so far i've scheduled so one is um this drag brunch that kaya is like facilitating, I think at Our Time Kitchen. So I, I cook out of Our Time Kitchen, amazing place. Kai invited me to do a coffee ceremony at a drag brunch. Talk about dreams come true. Like I'm like, amazing. okay, you want me to do my favorite thing at like my favorite thing? Like, okay. Um, and then um, the other owner of Our Time Kitchen has invited me to do a coffee ceremony for some folks at this um, event that celebrates Black women chefs. Um, that's part of her nonprofit but the the waiting for bunna as my art practice um i'm slowly you know opening up to this idea of myself as an artist and i've contacted some of my friends who have been working as artists for a long time to sort of help me like come into that and so i would love to do that you know at whatever, um, but as an art practice, because that is uh-huh. different. Like when I do it as an art practice, like it's, it's, it's bringing up, like I said, queering time and like this idea of the sacred and the mundane. And I, I go into this totally different mode of how I show up and how I interact with it and, and really want to like talk about the coffee ceremony as this, site for reversing the gaze and for really understanding like the in between the liminal place between like Western culture and how in doing the ceremony, it's almost like reclaiming and decolonizing that space and time for that moment. Um,
0: that is magic.
1: It is. It's definitely.
0: That's magic. That's a, that's a magic practice right there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And our, and our, we do the coffee ceremony like three times a day in our culture so yeah I would love to do it for you let's do it I land this down get a little group of people fruit camp folks or whatever we'll get (laughs) amazing
0: yeah a big gay coffee ceremony I'm so into it um so this kind of this needs uh leads really well into the next question uh that I want to ask you which is like not one that I actually wrote down for you (laughs)
1: I, know. I would love
0: to well I, I did kind of write it down um I I would like to know like what are your visions for the future with um with food with like moving towards decolonizing uh like what do you what do you see coming or what do you want to see coming
1: I You know that feeling you get when, and I not everyone has experienced this, but it's like when you eat food that, you know, in someone's backyard that came from a garden that just is like fresh, and I've experienced this in the US, but I've also experienced this a lot in Ethiopia, but there's like this feeling that we get when we eat, and I don't know like pleasure, joy, connectedness, belonging, like ease. You know, I think the ease, ease is like part of it. Um, I don't know. I want that feeling. I want, I want us to not be afraid of eating. I want us to not be afraid. Like I, I it's amazing how many people have had to hold their hands to the process of of going to a community garden and being okay with just taking what's there and cooking it. I mean, they're afraid to eat food that's not from the grocery store. And then they do and they're like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah, it's free. Like this garden is grant run. Like they want people to come like prune everything and take stuff. And once they get there, they, it's like this exciting thing. Like it's like this, whatever you want to call it, like you're outside the matrix. Like it's, it's amazing the abundance of nature And when I started getting into herbalism, it really broke that open for me. And I was just like, just like how dandelions are everywhere, but they're also like a superfood. This idea of scarcity, this idea of rarity of certain things, it's just not true. And what really should be scarce is like how we eat meat and how we do these, like, you know, how we farm things. Like we need to calm Mm. down on that. But there's a lot of really amazing things for us that are not scarce. So I guess it's like a long-winded way of saying like, I just see a future in which we're not afraid. We're not afraid. Yeah. And we reclaim what is already ours and we do it joyfully. It, it doesn't have to be so militant. Like this idea of going and we have to take down big pharma. We have to take down the like factory farms and we have to, you know, be vegan so that they stop killing, you know, It's like that is this deficit, scarcity, like we have to take something away with the fast, you know? And instead, and like looking at these giant powers that be and trying to get our freedom from them, it's like, why don't we just focus on what we already have and just live joyfully and give like less fucks and just be like, hey-
0: That sounds a lot like what we were talking about earlier with disease being warfare in certain contexts, um, in certain traditions. And then in other traditions, like your health, your body is, is a garden, right? Like that. I just, I see that um, that mode of operating bleeding out into like different areas. Like it's so, it's so ingrained in us that, That in order to achieve something, there has to be deprivation and extraction, either of ourselves or of something else.
1: Yeah. And I just, I want to dispel that, um, you know, and I struggle with that. So I I think it, like, what I really want to be transparent about in all of these, in all of this, I am not somebody like on some mountain that's figured out how to do this. There are people that do a much better job of this than I do. And I think because I've struggled with it in like what you talked about earlier in this like idea, that it's an individual choice. It's like, I'm tired of making individual choices, you know, like I, I, I'm not putting that on me, but at the same time, it's like, how can I think about with other people and co-create the world that i want to see i'm not you know putting it all on me while i also do have a responsibility with the knowledge that i have with the business that i have i need help a friend just dropped off some plants for me and some tinctures and we're going to be splitting a garden plot and then they also brought like a bag of seeds recently and i just was like they helped like they held me through this thing and now we're going to do it together And it's like, I need help.
0: We got to plant those flowers, right? I'm
1: I'm like putting this out (laughs) to the world, like, come help me. Like, let's do this together. Let's not, you know, I don't have a car. So I've walked all over the city and, you know, there's an abundance of mulberries and all these things that just are forageable. But there's also like, there's just so much here. Um, But... You got a car, pull up, like, let's go grab some stuff. Let's go like, create, let's go do a picnic in the park. I live by Druid Hill. Let's help each other be great. You know, um, having to wake up in the morning and like make all my own smoothies and I have my gifts, you have your gifts, we all have our gifts, like let's collaborate and do them together. And it sounds like some idealistic thing, but it's not because we literally do it all the time. And it's straight
0: up ecosystem living
1: you know? That's what that is. Already do it. Um, but I think sometimes where we have to, you know, this idea of like decolonizing our minds or healing, you know, the way that we think about things, we, we, the the imagination is what's like the most colonized. I believe that. I think that, that, that where they really got us is by colonizing the imagination. And, um, it's amazing how someone can just come up with an idea and then we go, wait, what? Okay, like I never thought of doing things that way. And I'm like, well, yeah, because they our imaginations are yeah. missed. Like that's, you know. Like they
0: don't always have to literally take away food from us if they just convince us that there is no food. Yeah. That's it.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> it, le- it bleeds out into everything. Like you said, you know, this is just one way, but I think the the way of when our relationship to food shifts, it shifts so many other things in our lives about what we believe is possible.
0: Mm -hmm. And I love that. I love working with food because it's such an embodied practice that you can do multiple times a day. Like it doesn't have to be a hyper intellectualized academic thing. Like you just sit and having your coffee ceremony and then people pull up who like know and recognize what's happening, even if they're not necessarily directly from that culture, they're like, oh, we're just going to sit and be with each other. And that's, that's what we're going to do. And nothing else matters for the moment.
1: This is the most important thing. And, and because I live in the U S and Don't live in a community full of Ethiopian people. Don't live in a community, you know, near, like, I struggle to do these things. Like, I want to do a coffee ceremony three times a day, and I can't. There's no one to do it for. Um, I want to eat a certain way. There's not, I cook too much. And I used to think that, like, oh, I wish I could, like, learn how to cook just for myself. You know what?
0: No, I'm reclaiming It's a little weird. I'm reclaiming That That is not traditional. That is
1: not how we're supposed to do things. There is a reason that is hard for me to do. Like the way I cook when I'm cooking for my community, for my people, it's like I feel this creative flow come through me. And it's just like I'm channeling and I make things I've never made before. I I get into this like transmutation. I love feeding my people. Like, why should I feel shitty about myself? Because I can't do that just for me, you know? We have this saying in, in my culture, whenever you're sitting down to eat, if say there's anybody around you, they could even have their own food. We say nibla. Nibla means eat with eat, come eat. We always, always invite people to eat off of our plate. If it's a plate of like burger, cut it in half. Even if the person is going to say no, we still say nibla. So it is like ingrained in who we are to not eat alone.
0: That's beautiful.
1: My mom said the same thing in Sudan when they were refugees in Sudan. She goes, I remember being in Sudan and every Sudanese person, if you're walking by them on the street and they're eating, they'll say, come eat. Like that basic, you know? So part of it is also me going through sort of the things that I've been super critical of myself about over the years and kind of going through my own personal checklist as they come up and being like, wait a minute. No, I'm not going to feel bad about that. You know, because I was also raising diet culture, fasting, doing all these things, body image, this idea that certain bodies are healthier than others, BS. Um, The number of people that I know that are like very thin that have major problems with their health. (laughs) Um, and the people that I know that have larger bodies that are in peak condition and can literally bend like a pretzel during yoga, um, you know, no.
0: So speaking of of being with people and sharing with people, I would love for you to just um, lift up someone in the community, someone you want us to do a community shout out for. Maybe they could get um, some visibility, or you know, have us share our resources with. Who would who would you like to shout out today?
1: I would like to shout out my friend. C Mason. Okay, so they do not live in Baltimore, but they have this amazing connection to Baltimore. Baltimore. Um, they are in my coven, my collective called the Black Kiln Collective. We are diverse and spread out, but some of us live here. But C lives in Portland, Oregon, and um, C is an incredible healer, an incredible herbalist, an incredible human. And um yeah, they I always want to shout them out. So on Instagram, they're at C Art A S E A and then A-R-T-E. Um and they off. They are doing a lot of things that deserve support. And so if folks want to reach out to them, contribute to their fund that they're using to give, so they give free herbs and send care packages out to BIPOC folks. I get care packages from them all the time. They, they have this like uncanny ability of knowing like what I need. So I told them, I was like, that's your gift. You just like, you're like this farm, like- herbal pharmacist that just knows what people need before they know what they need. And then it comes in the mail and you're like, I needed that herb for this thing. Like, how did you know? And they're taking some classes right now to deepen their herbalist practice. And so yeah, just any support, they're building a farm in their, on their property that they inherited and just a beautiful soul. They just want to heal the community and give so much and I adore them. So.
0: I love it. We'll put uh, links to, um, the website and social media so folks can get in touch with them. Uh, and before we go, how do folks get in touch with you? How do they connect with you in your 5,000 businesses?
1: <laughs> it's such a Baltimore thing, like, to have 5,000 businesses. I love it. Um, I came here and I was like, oh, my people. Does everyone understand? <laughs> I like 10 hustles. Uh, if you just go on Instagram and at Mick and I, so my name is spelled M-I-C-K-N-A-I, the other way, if you don't want to go through Instagram, um, my website is called zagualay.com. So it's Z-A-G-U-A-L-A-Y.com. That is my consulting business, but you can also contact me through there. It has information that I think is really beautiful about my lineage and why my company is called Zaguale and all those things. So, yeah. Yeah that's how you can contact me and trying to think of other ways but I think that's probably the best and I'm all around so if you see me just say hi you see me walking
0: yeah awesome (laughs) if they happen to see you you know doing a coffee ceremony in front of fruit camp come join
1: (laughs) yeah exactly I'm in these streets I walk around a lot and I just started skateboarding so you might see me on a skateboard too what you started skateboarding at 40 I was like I'm 40 I'm gonna start skateboarding (laughs) So you might see me doing
0: that. I like, I really want to learn how to longboard at some point, but I just like have never taken steps towards it.
1: Well, if you ever want to go to the basketball court at Druid Hill, it's very safe and squishy and it's a great place to skateboard and go like one mile, half a mile an hour on your board. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) We'll put all your info in the show notes so people can look that up later. Thank you so much for this conversation and for sharing your stories and your wisdom. I had a great time.
1: Thank you. Me too. I'm so grateful for you and what you're doing. And just people don't know Baltimore is dope. So
0: yeah, it is. People don't know. Everyone's it's always dope. looking at New York and Philly and
1: Thank like the you. Bay
0: Area. Come to Baltimore.
1: Exactly. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Bye.
0: This episode is the end of our second season and I can hardly believe it. We will be taking a break in June for Pride and then back again with our third season in July. Who will be transitioning out as audio engineer to devote more energy to Strange Fox Fighting Arts and I am so, so, so happy for him. Ku has done such an excellent job of editing this podcast and it will definitely be a hard act to follow, but I'll do my best. Can swing sticks with him in DC and Baltimore as well as virtually. Dambana ang Dibdib is back, and this cohort is reserved specifically for QT by PGM, that's queer and trans, black, indigenous people of the global majority. Um, Dambana ang Dibdib translates to altar of the heart or altar of the chest in Tagalog. We will focus on Qigong and traditional medicine concepts to support people that have a history of or currently practice chest binding, gender affirming shapewear that affects the chest, or have had top surgery. The last day of registration is tomorrow, May 6th. This six-week course will start on May 7th and run every Sunday from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, live on Zoom. I'm excited to share that I've put together a Gender Affirming Surgery Support Bundle. This is a three-month container to help folks prepare, recover, and rehabilitate from surgery. I love, 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 love helping folks through this process. If you are curious, let's chat. I offer free 20 minute consultations. So folks can learn more about me and my work and decide if it is a good fit for us to work together. You can head to my website for more details on everything I've shared so far. And that is jamie-panetta-lac.com. I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Support for this podcast and Qigong scholarships for QT by by PGM comes from our Patreon members. If you're loving this podcast, check out my bonus episodes on Patreon. These are just me, solo, unedited, sharing about medicine, and behind the scenes info in a much more personal way. Episodes come out every new moon. In my most recent episode, I talk about the terrifying and very necessary act of taking up space, using art and creation energy. If you are interested in joining this ecosystem of wellness and accessing benefits such as educational modules, bonus podcast episodes, and zines, head to patreon.com slash We are now at over 227 subscribers on my newsletter, and hell yeah to being outside of algorithms and anti-trans, anti-queer censorship. In my newsletters, you'll find updates on things like events, Info on traditional medicine, and of course, this podcast. Maraming salamat for listening to the Decolonizing Medicine podcast. Music is by Amber Ojeda, Head Candy, and Rocky Marciano. Big thanks to Ku for editing all of the episodes for the first two seasons. I love you, babe. And last but not least, thank you to all our listeners and supporters out there. Ingat.